So we're in the, a vision series. So this is the beginning of the fall. So if you're new to Antioch, welcome. My name's Ken. I'm one of the lead pastors here. But we're kind of in this new series that is meant to, to frame or give a framework for our vision, what we really come to understand our purpose is. And so we have a mission statement that would be an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon, and also have a shaping voice in global Christianity. But that the vision, the, the practical piece that you see is, is really this idea that we're about the reconciliation of all things. Um, and that that's not something that we're making up. That's something that's taken right out of Paul's description of the gospel in Colossians. Um, I think we've got a slide where we can put that up. Um, none of my slides are in order, so it's hard, um, hard for anybody to keep up. But I think if we jump one over, it's Colossians. One more. There we go. Um, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so this vision of reconciling all things um, to himself is what God is about. We're going to see a little bit later that this is, is, is kind of the mission or the vision or the big idea that God's calling all of us into. But this idea of reconciling all things to himself is incredibly important. So maybe we can just leave that up for a second. This picture would be if as a parent, you have a child out and falls off of a boat in the sea and is going to drown or is at risk, and your desire is that that child would be brought safely back to you and that you would once again be in a relationship that felt like it was secure and you were able to enjoy each other's love. And so this situation needs to be kind of fixed, if you will. And as a part of that whole reconciling kind of impulse that you would have, your desire either uh, would be for somebody else or for you or somebody that's connected to you to jump off of that boat into the water and to save um, your child. Does that make sense? I mean, that, that impulse to save things is, is an important one. Um, and it shows that what we're jumping in to save has worth. We, we don't jump into water to save just anything, right? Like uh, if you're at Crater Lake and you're walking and you kick loose some rocks and they fall into the water, like you don't jump in to like rescue that rock or that pine cone before it goes under, right? Um, if, if a dog went in though, you'd probably jump in. Not a cat, but a dog, right? <laughs> Um, how much more like a child. And, and so the idea is that somebody would jump in and save the kid, but that saving is just that, that little action that is a part of the broader or, or, or bigger kind of reconciling impulse. That kid is saved from that water, but, but I still want them returned to me and then to enjoy this relationship. So salvation is a piece of the reconciling kind of impulse. Does that make sense? Um, it's, <clears throat> it's interesting uh, when we say we're going to be about the reconciliation of all things, it can bring up this question of well, what about the talk about salvation? And it's simply that. It's just, they're not either or, they're actually both and. That salvation is a piece of, of, the, of the puzzle 
as God is reconciling things back to himself. Let me show you the difference that it works with. If I say God wants to, or a dad wants to reconcile a child that's in the ocean back to himself and enjoy the healthy relationship, what is it that's, that's beginning this whole thing? Me as the dad, my child out there. Where, where does the story actually begin? Begins with either my love or the worth of that child. Fair enough? Like what gets it going is my desire, my passion, my love for that child and or the worth of that child. If we just take salvation and say, this is the summum bonum, this is what's going to go in the box, and, and that's all we're going to see, um, oftentimes we get what I saw when I was driving across, uh, I don't know what it's called, but it's that new little cutoff road that takes you... Uh, South of town, kind of by Walmart and the roundabouts to Les Schwab right there and then the roundabouts. There's roundabout on each end of that road. Is it Murphy? It just doesn't sound right, but it must be Murphy because you're looking at me like, okay. So, so I'm driving. I shouldn't say where I was driving. I was driving north of town and I, there was a little bit of a house where where you could see from the road this little bit of a house, and the owners of that house had put um, a sign that said, want to know how you can escape eternal damnation, question mark. And I, it was interesting because when I see those signs as a pastor, I'm like, oh, those people are very, very staunch, you know, whatever. Like I have a category for like, for, or, or fundamentalist or whatever it might be. I have a category for that. But as I drove past it, um, and I was getting further down uh, the road north of town, um, I thought to myself, if I saw that for the first time, like, you know, um, don't move to bend, you know, if you're mean. Like, what are the bumper stickers, you know, that you see or the little, like, you know, nice people love bend, bend is nice. If you're from California, don't move to bend. Like, what, what is it? Ben sucks, don't move here. And it's like satire because it actually doesn't suck, and, but we're just wanting to keep other people out, right? So, I mean, you got this whole idea that Bend is nice, okay? And if you're driving along thinking, what a wonderful place, what a welcoming place, and you see that sign and you, you're not a pastor and you, you don't have kind of a history or category, what does that sign actually say? Its starting point is, is your judgment or that, that you deserve judgment. It, it begins with um, the, the, the water and the sharks underneath the water. It's a different starting point. It's not that it's false. It's just to start there means that you've already jumped past the idea that there's a loving God, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And, and you, you missed the part that, that we're valuable, that who show, uh, whosoever should believe in him might have eternal life, that God wants his son to be able to redeem or to save, not rocks or pine cones uh, or cats, but his children, right, that we have value. So it starts with the love of God, the desire of God. It's, it's connected to the value that we have as his children or his creation, at least bearing the image of God. And it goes right to our kind of own introspective, 
Do you want to burn or not? And it's a different starting point. So we're talking about the reconciliation of all things because this is the gospel we've been given, that this is the work that a loving God is involved in and that he's doing this work through the cross, through Jesus Christ, and ultimately we have the good news of being able to be joined into that through salvation. That cross is a mechanism, it's a piece of this reconciling work of God. So we came up with a cross diagram and, um, and used kind of this definition of righteousness, that righteousness is a right relationship with God, uh, with others, with self and creation, to create this cross. The arms of the cross, if you were here last week, we talked about it a bit, um, city, church, and world, that we would kind of start where we're at and move out, and that somehow um, the church has a special place in that. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, uh, don't grow weary in doing good, but as you have the opportunity, um, continue to do good, because if you do not give up, you'll reap a harvest. So as you have opportunity, do good to all men, especially the family of believers. Something, there's something deeply beautiful and meaningful about this church meeting this place, Antioch. Like we can think somebody is special halfway around the world because they're a Christian too and they're meeting today in Hong Kong and it's a wonderful, beautiful, magical thing as well, but we cannot have the same kind of relationship with them as we can with these people. The person in Hong Kong is not going to step on our toes as much as the person in your, in your row. And I mean that literally. When you get up for communion, you get your toes stepped on. Or take your parking spot or give you a strange look or you run into them in town and they ignore you. Uh, or you have an expectation for how they're going to treat you and they let you down. Like it's, it's, it's a lot harder and ultimately demonstrates a greater value placed on sacrificial love and forgiveness when we look at the people here in our body and prioritize them without forgetting about the believer in Hong Kong halfway around the world. But there's these interesting dynamics of different spheres. And so we have the church in the middle there, but then city and world on each side. Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Um, we have to be reconciled to ourself. A lot, of, a lot of times, and we don't talk about this enough in the church, we just have a really distorted view of who we are and, and what we're to be about. Another way of saying that would be whose we are. Uh, and then ultimately creation, that God is reconciling all things, meaning his creation, the things that he created to be good, he is redeeming, reworking, and restoring, and that we're ultimately a part of that. So I, uh, well, actually, Pete had made the joke that a number of years ago, probably seven or eight years ago, I had done a, a kind of a little 10-minute rant at the beginning of the sermon critiquing the cross um, and, and why we have to be careful what we mean by that symbol. And that ultimately, if you go back to the early church, you had the ichthus, you had the cross. They both meant something significant and profound. But over time, when empire, Constantine and the Roman Empire came to be, the cross literally was co-opted in many respects as, as, a, as a symbol a bit different than I think Jesus uh, would, have, would have wanted us to see or invest it as. Uh, and then I made the... So Pete was talking about that. I made the comment, this is kind of the first time 
We've had a cross at Antioch, this kind of creative thing with artists, Paul Krauss doing this. I want to just clarify something. I didn't preach a sermon seven, eight years ago where I legislated whether the cross was okay or not. Um, I was critiquing our understanding of important things that we might have a more clear understanding. And when I said this was the first time we have a cross, it's not because now that we can kind of control it and make the cross look like what we want to or use our own original kind of artwork to create one, now all of a sudden the cross is okay. I didn't forbid the cross then, and, and we've never owned a building. So you want to know why we don't have a cross? Uh, the first reason would be just we haven't actually built anything where, where you would put a cross. So I want to be a little careful because um, that might have been misconstrued. Um, truth is an important thing. It's way more important than the way we take it often. We often take truth to be that thing that we use so that we can help show other people where they're wrong and why we're right. Fair enough? Like truth is logic is the thing that we typically engage in to explain to other people why they're wrong and why we're right. And, and it certainly can be used that way. I use it that way with my kids all the time. Um, however, truth, because it's uncompromising um, and, and doesn't necessarily pay any special regard to us, like its commitment is reality, not my feelings. Because of that, there are times when truth is incredibly uncomfortable to me because I have to modify to accommodate to it, or that truth is one of those things we wrestle with so that we can strip out the heresy or the bad thinking that has, has somehow jumped up either into our congregation, our church tradition, or even bigger than that, going back, you know, a thousand years or more, Christianity historically. Truth always wins even over and above some of these deep realities. And what happens is, uh, what happens is, is that there are certain sacred things in the church. And the cross would be one of them, and uh, evangelism would be one of them. There's, there's several of them. But these are just good things. These are not only good things, they're like the best things. And so we give them a wide berth, and in that gray spot, a lot of bad ideas can grow up, and we never go in close enough to address them because we don't want to get caught critiquing something that is, is, is good. Does that make sense? Analogy might be like not wanting to go in and do surgery too close to the heart, even though there's some things there that, that shouldn't be there that you'd want to address that the heart itself is so delicate and important that, that you don't really know how to go in and do that. And so in the church, oftentimes we back up. So my critique or those words we were talking about that way are meant to be how do we wrestle with truth and, and make the cross not just about me, which it certainly has relevance to, but to understand the cross in its true significance, which is this is the mechanism by which God, who wanted to reconcile the world to himself, sent his only son to die, that we would be forgiven of sin, brought back into relationship, and that this is good news, not just for me, but for others as well. Does that make sense? So we want to see it kind of in its entirety. Uh, a fun thing off that, and we can go back just uh, one slide to the Antioch verse. But if you haven't been with us uh, for very long, 
One of the reasons we took the, the name Antioch was in Acts chapter 11, we kind of see that this group of people that were understanding this, that, that Jesus' death wasn't just for the Jews, but also for the Greeks and for the Romans, for all people, for freeborn, for slaves in that period. And so this interesting phrase that Barnabas went to Tarsus and he went to look for Saul, who was Paul. Um, Saul is the Greek name. And then he went and found him, and he, I'm sorry, the Hebrew name. And he went and found him and then he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the, disciple, uh, the disciples of Jesus Christ, or the followers of the way is another way they were known, were first called Christians at Antioch. And so this understanding of the reconciliation of all things, in some sense, is tied up with this idea of, of bearing the name Christian, um, which I think is fascinating. So let's dive into this just a little bit more. We're going to go to... 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and this is a familiar verse, but we're going to go deeper into it than what we've done in the past, and it should be on the screen, um, but I can read uh, from here as well. And, and so it says in the NIV, and I'm curious, I might have put the ESV up there. Let me read from there. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Your life is now defined as if you have been made new. The baptism waters are that you would die to self and then be raised to life in Christ to symbolize this new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he, was commi- and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation or the word of reconciliation, if you will. So another way of defining reconciliation, I kind of used a little drowning example. Another way of looking at it would be if you took two people in a relationship and you just pictured a wedge kind of driven between them, Um, a wedge that now separates two parties or two people. And so you have an estrangement going on. And so this idea of being reconciled is that the wedge has to be removed or dealt with so that you can come back into an intimate relationship. And what God is really doing is in sending Jesus uh, to die for our sins, he is addressing the wedge, the wedge of sin, so that once that is removed, everything is different. God doesn't change, but we change. So we're not far anymore, we're close. And, and in being made new, we are back into the intimate relationship with God that God desired. In fact, when Jesus first showed up, his name was to be called Emmanuel. Why? God with us. God wants to ultimately be in this intimate relationship with us, which he accomplishes through Jesus' death on the cross. So I was wrestling a lot with this passage and, and trying to, every turn I went, thinking or feeling like it's it felt like duty. So what we're talking about today is that first part of the cross, reckon, being reconciled to God. And so I'm, I'm wrestling with how do we be reconciled to God? Well, well, we are reconciled through Christ objectively. Well, how do we stay reconciled to God subjectively as we go through life with our emotions and our experiences? And so I was kind of just going back and forth and, well, maybe if we did this, maybe if we read our Bible more, maybe if I talked to Antioch uh, about forgiving sins more, maybe what are the ways that somehow we can stay reconciled to God? Um, 
And it was Charles Spurgeon who kind of helped me out of that, that fix. Um, Charles Spurgeon is the, the late, great British uh, preacher of over a century ago. And he wrestled with this text, and there are two things that he kind of brought that I think are incredibly important. That the objective reconciliation that God accomplishes in Christ is, is fixed and firm. That God has done that work, and it is, it is now and forever. If you are in Christ, then you are a new creation, first. Second, the whole idea is that it's from God. All this is from God. Not some of it, not the first part, it's all from God. The grace that reconciles us, the grace that sustains us, the grace that keeps us with God is, is ultimately starting from God. So a little bit further in 2 Corinthians, um, we get to kind of the conclusion. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We go, we bear his name. And God is making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, if we're going to stay reconciled to God, if we're going to be right with God, which is that idea of the righteousness of God, how is that going to happen? It's going to happen in him. It's going to happen in Christ. So here's Spurgeon. I'll read a little bit for you. Spurgeon says this uh, of this passage, First then, let us inquire, what is the objective of true gospel ministry? He says that it is, men, uh, it is that men or women should be reconciled to God. Second point for Spurgeon, Secondly, I want to make known to you as plainly as I can, what is this word or this message of reconciliation that we're supposed to preach. And he says, I have to tell you that, quote, all things are of God. That is the first sentence of the verse from which our text is taken. If therefore you are willing to be at peace with God, there's nothing whatever needed from you. God has prepared all things that are needed for this present and perpetual reconciliation. To make the friendship between God and man firm and lasting, all that is needed has already been supplied. So the operative thing here is if you are willing to be at peace with God. You see, our life is stressful and we go out into the world and we build up kind of a negative charge and we begin to have doubt and we begin to feel loss and we begin to feel like our faith isn't working. I've got my stresses, I've got the relational tensions, I've got the things that I didn't think were going to be there, and the freedom that Jesus promised me is for freedom that I've set you free. I don't know that I really feel. And so when I go along the lines of Philippians and what Paul says, when we take our, our requests and present them to God, do you know what our requests should be? They should be um, the kinds of things that Jesus prayed for, which are the kinds of things that are in the Psalms which are really the wrestling of, I'm in this pit. God, why are you so far from me? My enemies are all around me. I'm undone. I wish I'd never been born. Like those emotions are the things that we bring to God, our angst. We're in a bad habit, church, um, of bringing requests to God that, that are very specific. I need 500 bucks. Um, I want a different job. Uh, I want somebody to change. Those are kind of in, in the mix, but they're, they're, 
we want God just to turn the screw. And if he doesn't, then we're kind of left in this really weird spot of going, does God hear my prayers or not? If he doesn't, then I feel like fatalistic. What's the point? I can't even communicate. If God does hear my, my prayers but doesn't turn those screws, then what do I make of Jesus saying, present your request to God and God will take care of or guard your, your minds in that, that space, right? So the, the thing is we're supposed to take our unfaith to God. We're supposed to take our unfaith to God. We take all of our experience and our emotion and we go and present our request to God with thanksgiving. That God, I know that you know about this. God, I know that, 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 that you have this. I know in the past you have worked to save your people. And I know that even if you don't save me from my cancer, you have delivered people from cancer, and that even if you don't fix me with my family turmoil, I know that there's peace in the family. I know you are the one that reconciles things, and so I'm bringing you my angst with thanksgiving, and when I lay that down, Paul said, understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What's our role? Is not to go and work not to strive, not to go and earn. Our work is to remember to live at peace with God. That we would bring all of what is unfaith and unbelief and come back to God and give it to God, recognizing that ultimately there we're, we're, uh, will we be actually restored or renewed. And so again, uh, the psalmist, renew a right spirit within me. Isaiah, some of the, the, the most beautiful verses that, that we would soar on wings of eagles, that somehow there's this restorative power. That's what grace does as we take the difficult part of life and come back and recognize that the God who loves us and has brought us near works on our behalf, works on our behalf to keep us reconciled. We have all things in him so that we might be right with God with Christ Jesus as the operative thing that has removed this wedge. So where does that really go practically? That's a bit um, abstract. So let's transition here and, um, and get a bit more practical. J.I. Packer once said, uh, who wrote Knowing God, and, and it's kind of a preeminent theologian in our day, he said, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. In other words, when you put God at the center and begin to orient around that, it changes our perspective to things. Packer also says, wait on the Lord, quote unquote, is a constant refrain in the Psalms. And it is a necessary word for God often keeps us waiting. He is not in such a hurry as we are. And it is not his way to give more light on the future than we need for action in the present or to guide us more than one step at a time. When in doubt, do nothing, but continue to wait on God. When action is needed, light will come. Maybe another way of saying this is that we're to abide in Christ. That the work we do isn't work toward our righteousness. It's, it's energy or investment or, or intentionality to stay where we're supposed to stay. That's what that word abide means. So it's like, I got to do something. Well, if we're going to do something, it's not the earning that we're doing. It's the remembering that we're doing. It's the abiding that we're doing. So here's 
Um, here's what Jesus said. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And then he goes on and says, the truth will set you free. Um, Jesus continues in John 15, abide in me and, an, and I will abide in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Picture that of a grapevine. Um, neither can you uh, bear fruit unless you abide in me. As a branch, you have to be connected to the stock. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, the work we do is to stay reconciled to God through Christ by abiding. If we try and get out and fix the problems of the world to reconcile the world on our own, not realizing that it is God who has given or supplied us what we need through Christ, our actions will fail. Our initiatives will ultimately not come to anything lasting. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. In other words, there's a worthlessness to straying from or not remembering to stay with um, God in Christ. And the branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and burn. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's that whole message again, that when we're remaining with him, we take all of our experience and we bring that in prayer knowing that God hears us, loves us, and is going to work towards reconciliation. First John, the world is passing along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And we've got one on the screen here. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. I would venture to say that there's a lot of confusion in society today, that coming into this church with, with just the amount of change in culture in all sectors of life, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of trying to figure out what's the right way to try and go and, and get the liberation of the peace that I know that I want inside. And a big part of this, Christian uh, Christians, is that we need to let the word that we heard from the beginning abide in us. What we heard from the beginning abides in us, then we too will abide in the Son and in the Father. That God so loved the world that he initiated this reconciliation to save us and restore us back to relationship and has supplied everything we need for life and godliness to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. And so that when we stay there and lean on him, we will have the grace and the renewal to mount up on wings of eagles and to be able to go out into life that is chaotic, but the storm won't be in us, it'll be outside of us. And so when we look back at scripture, this is always the case. God putting himself at the center of the Israelites in the temple. When he wanted them to move, it was the pillar of fire or the cloud of smoke. But when they camped, God was at the center in the tabernacle. God dwelt with his people. The incarnation, God with us, Emmanuel, was Jesus coming and dwelling with the people in the middle. God is at the center. And when we find ourselves locating life with God at the center and then choosing to walk out with that knowledge, it changes all about our perspective. Not a thing should remain the same. So yet the trials remain. We 
end up different. This is what James says, by consider it pure joy whenever you face many trials, because these trials are going to build a kind of character and perseverance, because in that tension or the stress, you're going to need to uh, learn to lean on God for the grace that only he can give, because it's not easy enough to just go and do it on your own. So I want to do something a little different as we close out here, and I want to kind of pray, lead us through just a bit of a guided prayer, Um, but... Uh, and then when I come out of that prayer, we're going to take communion and go back to the worship team. And so let me just set that up. But we have the two aisles here, and you can come and participate in, in uh, the bread and in the juice representing Jesus' broken body and the blood spilled for us, that we have all that we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus, that we are commanded to remember this that this is how we abide. Does that make sense? If you don't want to take communion, you can sit and, or stand and worship. You can also go back to the exit signs and receive prayer there. We would love to pray for you. But here's kind of the bottom line where it coalesces with God at the center. Psalm 46, 10 through 11 uh, on the screen. Be still and know that I am God. Slow down just for a second. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, brothers and sisters. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The thing we can run to that anchors us where we have security. Be still and know that I am God. Habakkuk, my dad's favorite Bible verse. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The Lord is in his holy temple and he knows the difficulties we face. He sees it, he understands it. He also knows what came before and what will come after and he cares for us. So as we come to him, we come to one of understanding and one of care and concern. Let all the earth be silent before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Would you read that with me one time? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes right now. And I want you to think of the hardest, most difficult relationship in your life. The most unreconciled relationship that you have. The one that keeps you up at night. The one that robs life of joy. And just picture that right now. And then hold it out. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. I want you to think of your greatest stress, if it's the anxiety of finance, career, or health, the thing that just keeps you on edge, on a hair trigger, that when you're alone just gets up in your shoulders and makes them just tie up in knots, the anxiety that you just don't have an answer for, Take and hold it. Hold it in front of you. 
The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Lastly, I want you to take the part of you that you feel is most misunderstood. Where do you have the the strongest urge to feel pity for yourself? You just feel unloved, lonely. Nobody knows. Nobody asks about this. I can share about it, but, but they never come back and ask about it. They, if they act like they know it, they don't really know it. I am alone here. If you can dig that out, hold it up to the Lord. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And that in these prayers with thanksgiving, the peace of God would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that we are reconciled to God, that we would be reconciled to God, that as we abide, we remain in the place where we get to enjoy the reconciliation with God bought through Christ Jesus.